At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, February 26, 2024 edition. And yep, I am back from vacation. And luckily, we had Luke here to fill in for me. And he's back again, uh, sitting next to me uh, in 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 spirit, I guess. We're doing so to speak. Places. You know, typically, typically you welcome me back, but I guess this time I get to welcome you back. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's that, uh, it's good to be back. I'm a little tanner, that's for sure. Uh, but equally as interested in the markets and, and helping our listeners uh, become better investors. That's what this is about. As uh, Luke, I'm sure helped with uh, last week. And our objective, whether Luke is hosting or I'm hosting or we're both here together, like today, is the same. And that's to help you become a better investor. And we're going to talk about the mark performance and run down the show topics for today. But as usual, we're going to hit our first caller question now. Hi, guys. Love the show. Was wondering if you could take a look at AT&T for me. It just seems like it's really cheap. And I am thinking about putting more than you guys recommend in my portfolio into it because of how cheap it is. And I was just curious if there's something that I'm not seeing or why this might not be a good idea. Thank you very much. Love the show again. Thanks. Bye. All right. Thanks for the call. And, you know, cheap is a relative term. Luke, you know that. I don't think I need to explain to everybody what AT&T does. It's kind of, uh, uh, it has, now, it used to be a duopoly with Verizon. Now, T-Mobile is uh, definitely muscled into both Verizon and AT&T space and uh, with the acquisition of Sprint. And so it's a competitive landscape out there. And he's probably looking at the P ratio, which based on next year's expected earnings of $2.30 per share, you're talking about a seven times multiple, 6.7% dividend yield. But we know it's down significantly from its 2020 highs. So pre, uh, pre-COVID, it was around $30 per share. Now it's been cut in half nearly down to sixteen sixty. Would you say it's cheap, Luke, or is that massive debt load uh, clouding the visions of many investors? Well, it can certainly be cheap and you don't have a full accounting of what you're buying. And in this case, you're buying $158 billion worth of debt which is a lot of debt, especially for a company that's $120 billion market cap. And so surprisingly, there's actually not that much short interest, 1.36%. So I think a lot of the market agrees that where it is right now does look pretty cheap. It's dividend yield 6.6. That's a little high, but we all know dividends are not really set in stone. So for me, the thing that also makes me hesitant to buy it is we don't have a full accounting of why the network was down 
the other day. I know they're offering users maybe $5 or something as a credit towards their bill if their network was down. But certainly one of the big risks that people don't talk about as much, in my opinion, is cybersecurity risk. So we don't know if that was related to external threats or what was going on. If it was related to external threats, what data did they potentially get that could adversely affect the price of this company as well? So for me, there's a lot more uncertainty than there typically would be for a company with these debt levels. Typically, we're just worried about uh, companies who aren't able to service that debt. Now, now I'm worried about what 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 risks there are that may not be fully accounted for. Yeah, that's certainly a near term risk. Is and and long term, right? Is is if this happened once, certainly could happen again. And uh, I know that AT and T was mainly affected, but I, I've heard Verizon and AT and T Mobile customers were also affected uh, to some degree, um, not as much as AT and T. Um, but overall, I think the bigger risk is that debt level. And that's what's happening here. Remember, everyone, everyone looks at something and they see a single digit P ratio and they think it's cheap. And yes, it's cheaper than the broad market, but a lot of times it's cheap for a reason. And the reason here I think is twofold that debt, like you talked about and the lack of growth, you know, you have earnings supposed to fall 7% this year, go back up 4% next year really a flat earnings picture over the past couple of years. Now, the positive is they spun off all those uh, Warner Brother assets and got out of the media business, which, you know, when it's a, it's a good lesson that when companies try to get bigger, it isn't always a good thing. Oftentimes they overpay, uh, they're outside their wheelhouse and they do bad things or, or just don't maximize, let's just say. Uh, those assets, and that's that was certainly the case uh, with the media assets that they that they end up spitting off and able to pay down some debt, but they also lower their dividend uh, uh, as well. So, you know, that's the positive is that they're more focused just on being a telecom company, but it's in a business that is competitive and there's not a lot of growth because it's it's so large. So, I don't find it super attractive. I don't think it's a bad investment. Um, but a lot of that cash flow, a lot of those earnings is going to go towards paying down that debt, right? So right sizing the balance sheet as opposed to paying out bigger dividends, for example. I think the dividend is not going to move for a, a long time until the balance sheet uh, gets right sized. Now, that, that might take five, seven, ten years uh, to do. So um, don't buy it just because it looks, quote unquote, cheap because it has a low PE ratio. Thanks for the call. Now, we have about 40 minutes left in the show, and time permitting, we're going to hit all of our topics. Our main focus point is in regards to passive funds and them overtaking active funds. And what does that mean for your portfolio, whether you're indexing or not indexing? And what does that mean for asset allocation within the market or, let's say, asset allocation, uh, capital allocation? Let's, that, I think that's a better way to look at look at it. So we're going to look at passive funds versus active funds and the investment opportunities that might create. We also have some other topics on the docket as well. One is about corporate governance. Is weak co- corporate governance bad or is it good? We're going to look at some data there. Also, the reverse repo facility. That sounds boring and archaic, but it is a very important part of the plumbing of our financial system, the treasury market, and if that gets disrupted and that creates a, there creates a problem in the treasury market, that often creates a wider problem in the financial system as well as we saw last spring. 
And then lastly, if we have time, high-yield savings accounts. You don't always get what the advertised rate actually is, so we're going to look into the details there. But we also have voice bank questions to get to. One is on relative strength, and the other is Disney. And, of course, we welcome your finance and investment questions now at 888-989-CHART. But we're going to do a quick break. On the other side, we're going to... We're going to talk about today's market activity. So give us a call now at 888-99-CHART. InvestTalk callers make each podcast unique. I was calling about Intel, if it's worth holding on to or should I sell it? Their questions are curious. Hello, I have saved up around $80,000 and I was wondering what I should do to make it grow. Careful. Oh, I'm just wondering, is this a value trap? Because it looks like it's gone down quite a bit. Concerned. Uh, It's taken quite the tumble today. I've been trying to get out of this position for a while. I think I waited too long. And clever. Does seem to be situated in some areas of expanding population. And Justin Klein, Steve Peasley, and now Luke Guerrero, are always ready with their unbiased answers. And this is, it looks like a classic example of chasing yield. Don't chase the yield. Next 12 months price to earnings is around 30. I just don't see it at this price. Don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. InvestTalk is here to help. And when you download the free InvestTalk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open, 888-99-CHART. Now, Luke, let's take a look at the markets today. It was really a mixed bag. You had large caps, broad market down a little bit, small caps up a little bit. And we have a lot of we didn't have a lot of economic news last week, but we do have a lot this week, especially on the inflation front. Right, CPI is tomorrow, and then PCE Thursday. If I'm remembering correctly, I don't believe CPI is tomorrow. No, uh, CPI is a couple weeks from now, but PCE is okay. Thursday. That's what it's. That's what I was thinking of. Um, but it's certainly a, a mixed bag. We're getting to the end of earnings season. Obviously, the story last week was Nvidia. That was eh, up two bucks today. Nothing, kind of a flat day. Uh, frankly, uh, what did you see today? Yeah, like like you mentioned, U.S. equities kind of mostly lower. The Russell 2000 was the big surprise to me. So small caps have been really underperforming big tech for a while, but they kind of climbed up a little bit, especially after the events of last week. But I think you nailed it. Generally, there was really no narrative shifts or anything because there hasn't really been any any news. January new home sales came out, slight miss, uh, but. Like you said, most of most of the the narrative is going to be waiting for, or rather, most of the observers of the market and and a potential shift in narrative is going to be waiting for PCE on Thursday. That's the big number this week. Yeah, and that is why I've been focused on the CPI. PCE is much closer to what the Fed actually follows, and what uh, and there's a lot there's less uh, influence there from housing. We talked about CPI. There's a lag effect of. Uh, what is called owner's equivalent rent that kind of skews that. And so it's a pretty poor measure, truly, of inflation. That's why the Fed uses the PCE. Uh, and so that will probably be the big mover uh, for this week. But a mixed bag today, not much trend to really uh, really uh, discuss. But let's keep things moving and pivot back to the Best Talk Voice Bank for this question that came in earlier. 
Yes, Mark calling from San Diego. Thoughts on Disney, D-I-S. Is it overvalued, undervalued, or just fair value? Got a bunch of shares. Just wondering if it's time to hang on to it long-term or let it go. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, looking at Disney, a name that's got into the streaming wars or right around the depths of COVID. And the stock rallied dramatically from about 125 in late 2020 all the way to $200 per share. But now we're down to 107 after bottoming out around $80 per share. Earnings estimates are going up, Luke, but revenue growth is flat year over year. Uh, the technicals have certainly improved. That's one thing that makes me start to get a bit interested in this name now that it's not just in a perpetual downturn. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, really what gets me interested in this name is that streaming no longer seems to be the burden it was two years ago. They lost $4 yeah. billion two years ago. They lost $2.6 billion last year, and now they've only lost Three hundred and eighty-seven million in the latest quarter. So they certainly are making improvements in terms of creating new options for uh, consumers to have ad-supported services, as well as increasing costs as well. So cutting costs, increasing revenue from that segment—that's certainly a good thing for me. You know, this is—I don't know if this is the exact time to buy it, but certainly close. I have always been a proponent of uh, Disney is a. Solid long-term investment at a, when it is at a fair price because the IP it holds is something that no other company can really match up to within this space. Uh, having having taken my my nephew to Disneyland for the first time when he was he's three and a half years old, I can I can certainly testify to the fact that it still gets kids going. And so I think that it's near a fair price. I think we've seen some improvements on the operational side, and like you said, some technical improvements. Uh, but I'm not sure it's quite there yet. I'd have to probably see another quarter's worth of earnings to to feel that the trend has been has been consistent. Yeah, it's it's definitely improved. Uh, I I would say it's fair value. I don't think it's cheap or expensive. Uh, but like you said, it is has great IP. Uh, I do worry a bit long long term about the shift towards a lot of kids watching more YouTube short term short form videos, uh, and you know just think of the Mr. Beast of the world and how much attention they're getting that takes away from attention towards a, a Disney movie, for example, or the Disney channel or whatever. Right. Um, and so it's really about, and you and I are in that age bracket where the childhood, we were watching Disney movies and, mm-hmm. you know, we have some connection to those characters and, and if they're not watching those now that does manifest probably another couple of decades down the line. Um, but still, uh, that is something I think is probably one of the bigger risks for Disney. Um, they still, have ESPN. I think there's some challenges there, but the fact that they've been able to, like you said, raise prices uh, in for Disney Plus, bring in more ad revenue with the their ad supported version, etc. Uh, they've been able to at least make not make that business not a drain on their their cash flow. So I think that's a positive. So uh, I think it's a good company at a fair price with improving technicals. Now we're going to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Invest Talk Voice Bank. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. Now. 
No two portfolios are alike, and every investor has a unique set of circumstances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Your main focus point today concerns this topic. Passive funds have overtaken active funds. And this is coming from data from Morningstar. And it showed that in December, the net asset Net assets in passive funds exceeded those in their active cousins for the first time ever. So passive vehicles stand at $13.3 trillion in assets. $8 trillion of that is in equities. And this follows a study last month in the U.S.'s National Bureau of Economic Research. And what it showed was that those stocks that were in these indexes were doled to the impact of news that should have moved their stock more dramatically. And there's also a study by Purdue University, and they looked at currency shocks and other impacts that uh, on, on companies that companies should be sensitive to, right? So for example, if a company has a lot of exposure to uh, currency exposure to one country and the value of that currency falls where they're getting a lot of revenue, there should be a requisite impact on the company. What it showed is that there was a 60% lower difference in stock idiosyncratic currency sensitivity when in the S&P versus not. And what it's showing is that this, the passive vehicles are in many ways undermining the basic premise of capital markets. And the basic premise is that money or capital will flow to where it's treated the best. And when it comes to the index funds, there's no consideration to that, Luke. It is not, it's not about, oh, what companies are, have the highest profitability or the best balance sheet, the best cash flow or anything like that. It's just market cap weighted as we know. And people are putting money in blindly. So are index funds bad for capital markets? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's a complicated question because it is. It one, is one, could, one could argue that the appearance of a company in S&P 500, which primarily looks at successful large cap companies, would mean that those companies could do well to avoid some of the issues with currency shocks or really any any exogenous shocks. Mm-hmm. So that's certainly an argument to be made. The other one to be made is, well, the reason why these companies are at the market cap they are relative to other companies is because of the revenues that they create and their discounted cash flows. And that you can certainly see an argument that the buy side activity, because don't get me wrong, certainly the easiest and best way, not certain, not not necessarily the easiest, but the best way to assess the bull case for a market is flows. Because money is flowing into the economy, or rather flowing into these funds, and those funds have to then go and buy stocks. So the more yeah. money that is flowing into buy stocks is certainly going to float float markets. But yeah, but I think the the point here is that yes, the money is flowing in, but it's not flowing. It's flowing in indiscriminately. It's just saying I don't care. What, no, it's flowing in completely discriminately. It's flowing in to where well, the market as a whole 
has decided this company is this size, this company is this size, this company is this size because a whole lot of variables, right? And so it is exacerbating trends that are existing already based upon where active management has decided to allocate capital. It exacerbates those trends for sure. And you can end up with a situation where you have runaway valuations of the market overall, but those runaway valuations should still be relatively in the same uh, ratios, if you will, of company A to company B based on how active markets have created these things. But now that passive is now bigger than active, what, where, who, who is influencing the market more? Are, is it the active who's actually looking at the, uh, trying to allocate capital according to the quality of the businesses, quality of these companies, the track record and future growth of these companies, or is now the passive more influential because it's bigger. And therefore this passive flow is completely void of any care in the world of how this, these assets, how these flows are allocated because it's just, Oh, is it the S and P I'm buying it? Is it the Russell? I'm buying it. Is it right? Is it the NASDAQ? I'm buying it. It does not think care. That's the point. That's the really the point of passive, right? Whether or not, uh, you're buying the best companies at the best prices. So the answer to that is maybe, and certainly at a certain point, right? At a certain threshold, because we all know that if it was 100% passive flows, the status quo would hold, right? Yeah. And active would have absolutely no influence on market valuations. If it's 100% active, then the status quo won't hold because active is influencing market valuations. But have we crossed the Rubicon to which passive investment now completely overshadows active and the market becomes inefficient I certainly don't think anyone's proven that. So we're certainly still still in this middle ground. And it is something to be cognizant of that passive investments can distort markets. Are we at the point where it's a critical distortion? I I don't know. Yeah, I don't think you'll know until hindsight, unfortunately. Well, yeah. Yeah. Next Invest Talk, we'll look into this topic. Capital One is buying Discover Financial. What is their strategy? We're going to look at that story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? I mean, how would it come in handy? And where would you want to use it? Could it be that you have an upcoming international trip? Or maybe you want to connect with family members or friends from a different culture? I think you should know about Rosetta Stone. With millions of users, it's been the world's most trusted language learning program for 30 years. Rosetta Stone is available on your desktop or as an app with audio companion and the ability to download lessons offline. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It has a built-in patented speech recognition engine called True Accent. So as you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you pronounce words. With Rosetta Stone, you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. It's an intuitive process designed for long-term retention. You really learn to speak, 
listen, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone is an amazing value, so your special skill set is within easy reach. You know you want to do this, so don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, InvestTalk listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off now at rosettastone.com today. The markets react to uncertainty. Are you prepared? Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Your financial future depends on the answers to those questions. Justin Klein is here now and ready to talk with you. Call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey guys, this is Matt from Merced. Just love the show and everything you guys do and find it very educational. So thank you. My question is about relative strength. I'm curious just how it's calculated and what length of time is typically used when they're calculating relative strength of a company versus the market, as well as what the near-term performance is typically, you know, if there's any statistics based on if a company has or 90 for relative strength or if it's lower, do they typically underperform? Is there a sweet spot? where you would find better near-term performance. Just curious, any information you guys have on that? And thank you again. Bye-bye. Well, typically, relative strength is looking at the last 52 weeks, 52 weeks of market performance and comparing what that stock's performance is. Uh, so, uh, and, and is looking at all the different names in the market, right? And... Whatever number that is, it's outperforming that percentage. So if the relative strength is 32, that means over the last 52 weeks, it's outperformed roughly 32% of all issues. Um, now, that just kind of tells you what's happened in the past. It's helpful, I think, more in relation to uh, different companies in the sector than anything else uh, to see, okay, what's been outperforming over the last year or not, um, because a lot of that last year's performance of a particular company is related to how strong the sector is. Now, if a stock has a relative strength in the 90s, meaning it's outperformed 90 plus percent of the market over the past year, or the stocks in the market of last year, then those trends, they tend to stay in place. Now, that doesn't mean that you just go buy those, because there are, they also have probably the biggest risk of reversing dramatically because they went up so much because the market's pricing in a much brighter future. And as long as that brighter future holds, that trend will likely hold. But if there's some sort of earnings disappointment, they can drop dramatically 20, 30% in one fell swoop. Um, so be cognizant of that. Uh, Outside of that, I don't know if I would use relative strength for a buy to buy or sell decision. I think it's more of a piece of the the puzzle to take stock of, shall we say? Pun intended. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. I think what I how I like to think of it is you buy a company for its fundamentals mm-hmm. and you decide when to buy a company based on its technicals. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's pretty much it. And relative strength is a very simple technical indicator. Now, there's a lot better ones. Uh, you know, we tend to use more uh, moving averages, patterns, for example. Uh, consolidation patterns are also um, very helpful, much more help, much more helpful than a uh, a relative strength number. But thanks for the call. Now, let's touch a bit, Luke, on corporate governance, and this is now in the limelight once again after the recent ruling by the was it Delaware judge the Delaware yes the courts Delaware in Delaware judge yeah uh, against uh, Elon Musk and Tesla uh, and the stock options that amounted to about twelve percent of the total share count based on a pay package that was agreed upon in twenty eighteen I believe if I remember correctly and the ruling was fairly simple that the government or the governance of Tesla was not sufficiently independent to award him that pay package. And so it looks like this is going to be reversed. Have you seen anything that might hold this up, Luke? Uh, I haven't seen anything, no, and frankly, I haven't really heard much about it since the decision came out and the subsequent railing about Delaware being unfair to businesses, which is interesting because it's probably the most fair state to businesses that exists. But, you know, I think this is the point that is made, in, and there's been some research into it, is that companies that have poor governance outperform companies with good governance. Well, that's since 2008. So the question is, you know, are you cherry picking the bottom of the market? Yeah, which you, which you <laughs> certainly can be. And I think it's also clouded by the idea that poor governance tends to occur when founders are still involved in the company and they own an absurd share or rather, a, 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 you know, a disproportionately large share of the market cap of the company, of the shares outstanding of the company. And so my argument would be, well, that typically means that those founders were already successful if those companies are, are as large as they are and are performing yeah. that well and they're still involved. So they're successful founders. But I don't think that necessarily tells you you should go out there and find companies that have poor governance. Yeah. Because you can have both founders that are heavily invested, meaning that their incentives are for the long-term health of the company, which is how it should be, and good governance, meaning independent directors that are not only independent from from the company itself, but from the founder, such that they actually look after the best interests of the shareholders. Yeah, that's what governance is for. It's it's to say this entity is for the shareholders. It's not for the founder, even though the founder may be a large shareholder. They're just another shareholder uh, uh, in line with everyone else. And a board is supposed to say the leaders are supposed to govern the leaders and make sure that they don't do anything that uh, is in is not in the interest of the shareholders. Um, and history says that good governance overall it doesn't make it a good investment if a company has good governance. But what often it can do is help avoid scandals, avoid a catastrophe by you know providing 
some general guard guardrails so they don't go too far one way or the other. You know, m- most cor- most boards aren't in the day to day telling the leaders of the company, the C-suite, how to run the day to day operations or even long term strategy. But there's a reason that pay packages for these the C-suite have to be approved by uh, the board is because you have to make sure that those pay packages are in line with uh, the interests of the shareholders. Now, a few examples of when governance collapsed and the stock in many ways did, and first is Enron, clearly. That triggered Sarbanes-Oxley. Uh, and then there's Volkswagen, 2015. That, that was a huge scandal. And that's because corporate executive power went really unchecked. And just like in government, you know, if you let a president run away with things and not have their power checked, you get, you know, something like Russia, right? Um, and it's good to have these counterbalances within a corporation. So that's the way to think about governance, um, at least from the, from the board level. And then leadership is another question, is how strong of a leader uh, and visionary uh, is the current CEO or, 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 or C-suite? Um, and that's, I think a separate question, and that's probably a better driver of upside, whereas board governance is a better protector of the downside. Now we'd love to take your calls during the weekday live stream. Of course, we are happy to take them anytime as well on our 24 seven voice bank. So let's play one now. Hey, you guys, this is Art from Tucson. I'm calling in today about a, uh, a small healthcare provider and services company. It's called Hims and Hers Health, H-I-M-S. Now, this is a small company. It doesn't make money. I know you don't like that. As far as I can see, it doesn't make money. But it looks like it might have some really good growth potential. I'm thinking about it as a very small part of my portfolio as a speculative play on growth, on future growth. And I'd like you to take a look at the company. Tell me what you think. And if if you were looking to make a speculative growth play with a very small part of your portfolio, if this is one you would consider, it's hard to find too much information on these small growth companies. So I always look forward to your wisdom and best talk. And I will listen on the podcast. And thanks for all you do for us. Thank you. All right. Uh, I wish he would have called in earlier because uh, this did have earnings after hours. And it looks like it's up about 20%. From 1027 at the close today, it looks like after hours, it's at about $12.25. And that's because it looks like they are now profitable for the first time. Made about a penny per share, nothing big. Uh, but, you know, from years of losing money, now it looks like they're profitable. Now their growth is slowing down, probably a law of large numbers here, about a $2 billion name. Uh, if you're on social media in any sense, uh, you typically, or I think they have some commercials now. Uh, and this is basically a company that helps connect people via telehealth to uh, get prescription drugs. Uh, they typically advertise, at least I know on the HIM side, uh, for erectile dysfunction drugs. I've seen that many times. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's a small cap growth name. Big earnings, Luke. You buy it on this earnings? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly making money is a good thing. That's what we that's what we want uh, with our investments. 
Um, but I wouldn't take, I would take that with a grain of salt, right? Making, making a penny for your first time is certainly not a long-term trend uh, of making money. Um, yep. One good thing that I like is there's not a lot of debt. Yeah, It's got $5 million worth of debt. And with a lot of these telehealth plays over the past couple of years, they, they really, really just sink that balance sheet with debt. So that's certainly yeah. something that is beneficial. But anytime you see a company make money for its first time and you see a huge pop like this, you're going to see it retrace. So I certainly would not buy it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but, but overall, for me, it's just not, it's, it's just not there for me. Even with, even with it now turning profitable, I need to see a long tra- longer track record, record of profitability, especially with short interest of 10% out there, which probably is what caused a lot of the squeeze that caused yeah. that price to increase. So without yeah. the ability, or rather without the backbone of people starting to cover the shorts they have, you probably aren't going to see the momentum continue. Yeah, the, the good thing uh, I see is a couple things. Uh, they have, yeah, they just made profitability in the fourth quarter, but two quarters before that, they were actually positive free cash flow for the first time. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that's a good trend. Their trend in cash flow is very, very good. Uh, their, uh, their, their earnings are obviously positive, like we said, uh, minimal debt. But one of the reasons they have minimal debt is because they've just been issuing a bunch more shares, which is what happens with a lot of these small cap growth names. Uh, but if they can continue this growth, then you know, we'll grow into that. Uh, the good thing is they've, it looks like they've slowed down since they become cash flow positive. They've kind of stopped issuing shares. So I like that. I like that they said, okay, now we're cash flow positive. We don't need to just issue more shares because we have no debt, et cetera. So I'm liking that little kernel there. Um, and I have to dig in deeper. It's still pretty expensive. You're talking about a price, uh, price to, uh, price to cash flow is still at 80 times. Um, but, um, this is coming more in line. So as a flyer, as part of your growth stock, a growth name, I don't mind it, actually. I really don't um, because I, I do think they have a pretty good marketing. Uh, obviously, it's paying off with that growth, um, but it's still high risk, and I wouldn't buy it on this pop. I'd wait for a retrace. Typically, these gaps, from a technical perspective, they get filled, meaning this, this will return to the mid-tens uh, range where it was pre-earnings. Now, the first quarter feels like it's moving pretty fast. We're already closing in on the end of February. And, you know, we talked a while, for a while that we are in this new higher inflationary regime, higher interest rate regime, and that means serious investors need to adjust their strategies for these new interesting times. And we remind you that here on Stock and at our company, KAPP Financial, where we operate with the same philosophy, which is independent thinking and shared success. And we practice unbiased guidance, both on and off air, and parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So I encourage you to take advantage of our free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go to meeting or send us a message through investtalk.com. But let's squeeze in one more question now before we head to our final break. Hey, Justin and Luke, Bill from Philadelphia. I'm calling about Teladoc, ticker symbol TDOC. And recent earnings, wanted to kind of get your thoughts of you. Maybe I should either uh, wait on that or just skip it all together and go to another alternative. I love what you guys do and uh, thoughts and prayers for Steve. Well, very apropos having that call following the HIMS call uh, because Teladoc, it was kind of the original telehealth hyped company. 
uh, post COVID, it went from about $60 per share all the way up to over $300 per share. Now we're at $14 and 79 cents. And this is a company that was losing money before COVID and then suddenly made a ton of money because people couldn't go to the doctors uh, easily because of the shutdowns. And then those tailwinds disappeared in, in most ways. And now they're back to losing money once again. And as uh, Luke, are you seeing, what are you seeing here on uh, the debt? I know you talked about these companies piling on a lot of debt. 1.5 billion in debt on a uh, 2.4 billion market cap company and no debt pushed out beyond 2027. So they're going to have to, they're going to have to roll that debt in the next couple of years. About half of it is, or rather 500 million. So a third of it is uh, coming due next year. Yeah. And they're supposed to lose money this year and next year. That's going to be difficult. Uh, And the chart tells you all you need to know. It's now at a all near, near an all time low. And the recent earnings have not been good. So, yeah, I'd rather own hymns than this, for sure. Thanks for the call. This is Best Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here each and every weekday, and this helps you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in right now at 888-99-CHART. Every investor is working to build a secure financial future. How they get there and when they get there, that depends on many variables. The more you learn about how the market works, the better your chances. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hello, InvestTalk. This is Andrew from Atlanta. My question is for the great Steve Peasley, Justin, or Luke. Luke, I was listening to your analysis. You were talking about the, the great seven companies, the M7, and Microsoft, I do have an interest in trying to take a position in there. What is a good price to buy Microsoft? I want to try to get in there and just hold it until I'm bankrupt. I sure love the show, guys, and keep doing the great work. Have a great day. Hold until he's bankrupt. Well, yeah, I, I always hesitate with any tech company uh, to say you put it in a drawer and forget about it. Uh, that's, a, that's a term Steve uses a lot. Um, just because you've seen throughout the years, tech companies can be disrupted easier than most, uh, just simply because just a, a new new thing can come along. Uh, you know, I just think of ChatGPT and, and Google. You know, are they going to be the ones to take down Google? Um, or does Google come out with a new business platform that uh, helps usurp Microsoft, for example? Um, so, you know, I hesitate to say you put it in, in, in a drawer and forget about it. But certainly right now, Luke, Microsoft is a good business, probably overvalued, um, like many of the Mag 7 are. Um, and the technicals certainly are weakening recently. I'd put a value closer to 300. Now it's at 407. What are your thoughts? 
I don't know if I'd go go that low. I certainly think it's a little bit overvalued. Uh, last week, a caller called and asked which of the seven Magnificent Seven I should buy. And being constrained by that question to name some, I certainly said that Microsoft and Apple have staying power where a lot of these companies don't. Microsoft has a very diversified business that has a stranglehold on, on business computation. Um, there are certainly some applications they have that I believe are inferior but have no choice but to use them. Looking at, at, at Microsoft Word is one of them. Outlook might be one of them as well. Um, and it also has a hand in cloud computing in a way that a lot of companies don't. When you think about Microsoft and Xbox and their video games, the future of video games is in the cloud. That's something Sony doesn't have. So they have a very diversified, well-run business. I personally wouldn't be buying it at these levels. We hold it for clients, but we didn't buy it for clients at these levels. I don't think it's a sell here, but I don't certainly don't think it's an add more here. I could see it dropping down closer to the 350 level. That might be where I pick some more up, but I think it's a little overvalued, but still relatively fair given the business and all the cash they have on hand. And they've been able to to soak in some yield over the past couple of years and not be as affected, affected as much as some of the other smaller tech companies that don't have that luxury. Yeah. A lot of cash to earn that nice five and a quarter percent on, on T-bills. Well, let's, uh, let's pivot over to that and talk a little bit about uh, something that Probably is boring to most, but if you understand it, you realize how important it is to our the plumbing of our financial system. That is what is called the overnight reverse repurchase facility at the Federal Reserve. And what this does is it enables large financial firms, such as money market funds, think of the six trillion plus that are in money market funds, to swap out extra cash for highly for high quality securities on the central bank's balance sheet and collect some interest. And at one point, this balance hit over $2.5 trillion, and it steadily declined since late 2022 to about $500 billion. And what, the simple explanation here is that when this balance goes up, money is it, it is taking liquidity out of the system, right? Because it's going out, dollars coming out of the system onto the Fed balance sheet is sitting there. Now, it's coming when it's falling, it means that that balance is coming out and into the system. And so uh, in many ways, the QT, quantitative tightening that the Fed has been doing, has been sterilized, meaning balanced out by the reverse repo drawing down from $2.5 trillion to $500 billion. So $2 trillion uh, has flo- flown into the system that way. And obviously, there's a good amount that, and, and due to QT that's come out. So basically, what this is showing here is that by about mid-year, May, June timeframe, this is likely to be depleted. And then the question will be, the, the, the next step will be, uh, excess reserves will be taken out, drawn down from the banking system. And at some point, if you have not enough reserves, you get a banking crisis like last spring. So basically saying is, at that point, maybe you might be on watch for something breaking. Doesn't mean it has to immediately. Also, the Fed could stop QT and prevent those bank reserves from falling as well. So this is a very important aspect to our bank, our system right now uh, that needs to need to watch out for, um, for that potential, potential next uh, risk-off event, which doesn't seem like it's happening tomorrow, but could happen by middle of the year. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program with Luke Guerrero, and we thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And please rate, please re- make sure to rate and review on iTunes as well. Independent thinking showed success. This is Talk. Good night.
InvestTalk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.